This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. If you want to get a hold of Sands & Associates, they've got a great 1-800 number, 1-800-661-3030. Their website, also terrific. Tons of information, sands-trustee.com. This segment's all about, and it's kind of a fun segment, because Blair gets a chance to talk about... um, scenarios of your clients and the thing is we're kind of all in this thing together and you hear about one client you know that there's dozens of other people in a similar situation exactly cool so let's talk about um, sort of the latest stuff that you've been encountering yeah so I'm kind of excited on this segment to links I think there's something we're gonna try to do every month call you know monthly client roundup or something what are we seeing what's new you know new and exciting or not exciting in in a bad way right Um, but yeah I've got a couple examples we'll talk through but I think the first thing um, is we're just seeing a ton of CRA Canada Revenue Agency related calls these days um, and a lot of them are relating to a tax scam that's out there. And I know we've talked about it a little bit, Elaine, but it's probably good for our, our listeners to you know, get a bit of a refresher of exactly what's going on with CRA. Yeah, because it doesn't have to be tax time for these people to be phoning you and bothering you about whatever, especially the scary phone calls, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you have to take action immediately. You yeah. need to call me back right away or we yeah. will blah, blah. Well, and that's exactly what we're seeing and what we're oh. hearing. I've had, you know, two calls in the last week on my cell phone and they're Clearly, you know, if you've got your antenna up, there's a bunch of badges of fraud. You can kind of tell maybe this isn't legit, but if you're someone in a tough situation, you might get sucked into it because they do prey on all of our fear about, you know, the tax man and the government having all these powers we don't even know about. So what actually happens is you get a voicemail typically, and it says, you know, you will be subject to arrest unless you return this call right away, literally in the next, you know, 30 minutes or so. If you don't have this call returned, we're going to be arresting you. So then you call the number back, and it's somebody from CRA, you know, they sound very professional and they say, you know, there was a problem with your tax return that's been filed and, um, you know, you need to go and make this right or else we're going to send the police to your door. And making it right means that you need to pick a number, you know, as low as 500, as high as in the thousands. Uh, you need to make a payment immediately to the government to settle this and then we'll call the police away. And by the way, the way they'll accept that payment, Elaine, Bitcoin. Yeah. Wow. So they they spin it all. You know, CRA, they want to have instant verification of payments being made. And, you know, they don't mention they want it to be untraceable and, you know, unrefundable whatsoever. But they try to say the government's now modernized and we leapfrogged everything to do with our commercial system. We're now on Bitcoin. So that would be a first huge, enormous red flag clue is that because, you know, to be quite honest, and I'm kind of savvy in some things. But if somebody said that to me, I'd go, what? Yeah. I have to do what? A how? I have no idea how to do that. Oh, and they'll talk you through it. You know, there's Bitcoin ATMs. There's a, you know, a lady in Whistler that put a good $10,000 into a Bitcoin oh, ATM man. before she got to her, her senses. There's a few in Vancouver as well. And obviously, Bitcoins can be used for legitimate or illegitimate reasons. Uh, but for anybody that's listening out there, CRA will never start a collection activity with a phone call. You're always going to get tons of letters. They're going to be very professionally written. CRA is not going to threaten you with an arrest, especially not the 
next day they're not going to show up at your door and CRA is never going to ask that you pay them in Bitcoin. So really there's a bunch of things that you know I've had clients come in and luckily not too many have been taken by this but there's definitely been a few um, you know they're in you know weakened senses you know maybe someone had just passed away or they lost a job and and suddenly you know this was an extra stress they couldn't handle and they just paid to make it go away. So, wow. So beware out there. Very good. Very good. And like I say, it doesn't have to be tax time uh, to get these phone calls. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what else? Yeah, let's talk about a couple of client examples. So, uh, you know, generally there's two things that we do. One is a bankruptcy, another is a consumer proposal. And about two thirds of our clients have been opting for consumer proposals for about the last couple of years. Uh, you know, a few years ago it was 50-50. It was a majority bankruptcy before then. So there's definitely a trend towards consumer proposals. Well, and I think once folks really understand what it is and how how it works, it just seems to be, I, I don't want to say the easiest, mm -hmm. but the most accommodating way of doing things. Yeah. And it's not as scary mm -hmm. a word for sure, as yeah. bankruptcy is, but, yeah. you know, there's lots of pros and cons. We've often talked about the differences between the two, but interesting. That's really interesting. I'm glad. I'm glad people are opting for that. Yeah, and I am as well, because usually people have a lot of pride when they do a consumer proposal. They say, yeah. you know what, I didn't take the easier way out of, of a bankruptcy, meaning that you pay less in a proposal. You typically have to pay more, but you get the satisfaction of saying, you know what, I didn't run from anything. I paid back what I could afford to pay back, and my creditors agreed with it. They said, yeah, this is a reasonable settlement. And all the benefits of a consumer proposal, too. I think those are, you know, it's important to sort of throw that in, too. Yeah, so let me talk through a, a client that I'm yeah. uh, and I work typically in the Vancouver and Langley offices, so, you know, to preserve confidentiality, I won't say exactly where each client is from, but I'll no. give you some facts here. Yeah. Um, but it was an individual who came in to see me, and he's age 74, so I'm seeing, you know, a lot of folks, you know, who definitely in their retirement years, they shouldn't have any debt, but, you know, for a number of reasons, sometimes debts do accumulate. Yeah. Uh, he was in good health, you know, very, very spry, a lot going on, but he was really stressed because he owed money. Um, his debts were $7,300. Not a lot. Doesn't sound like a lot. And the average person that we see, you know, typically it's thirty to forty, sixty thousand dollars, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, he had seven thousand three hundred dollars of debt. But it really mattered to him. It was important enough. It was disrupting his sleep. It was causing him huge anxiety because he just didn't know what to do. He was looking at his statements. He was making his payments, but nothing was going down. And his income was $1,800. So, you know, just CPP, OAS, and, you know, living in the lower mainland here, 50% of his monthly income was going to his rent. So wow. living on $900 there and trying to make payments on his debts of $7,300, he was doing it, but he was just not seeing the balances go down at all. Right. And uh, we'd have very, very little of disposable income. Exactly. So if he needed something for something else, a little bit of money, he'd be out of luck. Yeah. No ability to save money, no ability to weather an emergency or right. anything like that. Um, so I sat down with him and all of our clients, we meet them multiple times, multiple hours. So I met this gentleman at least three times for an hour each and we talked about all of his options. We talked about, you know what, it's age 74 at $1,800 a month of income, they're probably not going to sue you and force you to pay this debt. So you realistically could probably change your phone number, just move on and forget about it, but hmm. he wasn't interested in that. You okay. Know, he was feeling the anxiety, he knew, hey, you know what, I borrowed this money, I want to deal with it. Sure. Um, you know, as much as I can say it's not a criminal matter not to pay your debts and they might never pursue you for it, he still didn't feel comfortable doing that. Uh, you know, we also considered the idea of a personal bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Based on his income, he'd be considered low income. A bankruptcy would be over in nine months, uh, and he'd pay about $1,800 to do the bankruptcy over nine months. Um, 
I remember him saying, and I even quoted it here, in 74 years, Blair, I haven't gone bankrupt yet. I don't want to start now. Fair enough. So, yeah, that's a good way to come yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's not start now. And especially, you know, we're not talking $70,000 no. in debt. Again, we're talking 7300 Sure. So bankruptcy was not a foregone conclusion. What we were able to do is we structured a consumer proposal where he offered to repay just about 50% of the debt. So, you know, sometimes in proposals you can repay 20, 30, 60%, something like that. Mm -hmm. In his case, we thought the creditors would agree to a repayment of roughly 50%, and they did agree to that. They nice. agreed to a deal. He was going to pay $100 per month over 38 months, so $3,800 in total on his debts of $7,300. No interest, no additional charges, nobody bothers him at all, and the proposal's been accepted by creditors. So he's Lovely. incredibly happy. He gave me his banking information. We withdraw $100 a month, and about three years from now, I'll have no debt. He's going to move on with his life much happier. That's awesome. And so what a relief it must have been for him. A hundred yeah. and a hundred dollars a month. Yeah. That's really not very much money. Exactly. On a per month basis, it's less than he would have paid in bankruptcy, but yeah. it goes a, a little bit longer. Yeah. And what I was really happy too is he came in to see me after his second payday loan. So, you know, sometimes I see people when there's 10, 15 different payday loans, the okay. anxiety on that just multiplies because you know you can't pay them back. Um, so I was happy we were able to, you know, pretty well head that off at the pass. Right, because, and payday loans, we can spend just a moment. It's, you talk about it as just being an awful thing to get into, an awful, um, well, it's really vicious cycle. That's, yeah. that's exactly the word, Elaine. Yeah, it's, it's very rare that I get somebody with just a single payday loan because at 500% interest, which a lot of them work out to be, you need to take out a second one to pay the first, a third to pay the second, so on and so forth. So it just multiplies. Now, you talked about uh, him in the sort of the notes that I read about him. Uh, you said that he was judgment-proof, and I wasn't too sure what that meant if somebody is called judgment-proof when it comes to uh, debt. Yeah, that's a good point. So judgment-proof means that even if somebody were to sue him, if his creditor were to invest some money, hire a lawyer, take him to court, the judgment that they would get wouldn't have any force and effect, okay? The creditors could sue him and the judge would say, yes, you've got a valid debt, but to enforce a debt, you need to be either able to seize some assets, and he had no assets, you know, you need to have a house with no mortgage or something like that, which he clearly didn't have, and his monthly income of just CPP and OAS, pretty tough to convince a judge to give a creditor a piece of that. You know, if 50% is going to rent, do they want him to live on the street? I don't think so. Right. So realistically, judgment-proof means that even if you were sued, it's likely the judgment wouldn't have any effect on you, other than psychologically, emotionally, you'll know, hey, you're subject to a court proceeding here. Right. And the last one, and I think this is, I always think this is an important one that we talk about, is is credit counseling concerns. Yeah. And this was just an example I had last week that, you know, almost broke my heart in, in a way. Uh, it was a, a couple that I met with and 18 years ago, um, they got into trouble on their taxes. And it was because they were both, you know, very, um, very good students doing well in school. And then one of them got very sick and had mm. to drop out of school. And then subsequently they had a few kids and started a family. And, you know, now everyone's health is great. Uh, but for literally the last 18 years, these folks have had a tax issue that they went to see a credit counselor 18 years ago and they were told there is nothing you can do about tax debt in Canada. You just need to pay it. You need to suck it up and pay it dollar for dollar. Oh. Oh, so boy. for 18 years, they've had no hope. They've built no net worth. They haven't even filed taxes for the last 10 years because if they file, they know the government's going to want their money. Oh, you're kidding. So, so many times in my office, they said, how can this be allowed that someone can give bad information on debts? And unfortunately, it's buyer beware. If they had come to a trustee 18 years ago, they would have had a much different, you know, last 18 years. Oh my gosh. That is a heartbreaker yep. that they, uh, that they didn't think that they could take action 
and then be so afraid to do anything, especially even file tax your tax return. Yep. That's oh, very, very sad. If uh, I guess the bottom line, do you want to hit the bottom line? And I, I can talk about it or you can on this, that only a trustee uh, is, a federally, is federally licensed to help you understand your debt options. And I, yep. I think that's just a really good thing to remember. Uh, any credit counselor can set up shop overnight and then give bad information. Always get a second opinion. And if nothing else, if you're pretty much sold that this is the right way to go, and you just take that hesitation and get that second opinion and and call and make that get a free consultation with Sands and Associates. Um, Blair and any of his staff will be able to give you the best information that is available and it's factual and true and because they have to tell you the the facts about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, or check the website; it's terrific. Sands-trustee.com. Or you can give them a call at 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So we're going to start a series, which is kind of nice. Uh, This is the first episode, segment of the series. This one is uh, Bankruptcy Myths. And uh, we're going to to cover... uh, Well, why don't you explain how we're going to do it? Yeah, we're just going to go through. We'll probably get to, I don't know, maybe three to five today or so. But um, I wanted to just try to outline, you know, when people come in the door to see me, they've got mm-hmm. a bunch of, you know, really burning questions on their mind, sometimes a bunch of preconceived notions uh, about what's going to happen to them, how public it's going to be, how difficult it's going to be. Um, so I think if in today's segment we can just start to, you know, peel back the layers a little bit of the complexity and say, you know, here are the facts. What you've heard, there might be an element of truth to it, but for the most part, uh, the facts are a little bit different than what you assume. I think it's so important because we are we, we sort of make up our belief systems based on a whole bunch of things including stuff that we've heard from people uh, and uh, and the rules then yeah. compared to what the rules are today that it uh, could be the biggest difference, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bankruptcy law changes over time. That's a big factor. Now, it's also the case we're very close to the U.S., and bankruptcy law in the U.S. is completely different. You know, it's it's night and day different. You've got bankruptcy attorneys, you know, advertising bankruptcies for 300 bucks. It's a competitive market. It's it's just so different um, than it is here. Um, But to know Canadian laws, that's what's going to govern you in Canada here. And I think, you know, something I've I've come to learn over the last, especially since um, uh, in the last year or so, is how much we're influenced mm-hmm. by what goes on in the United States, yep. uh, whether it be our television, what we're reading, or 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 or, uh, or things that other countries do and how they impact us. And it's just really important to pay attention to this stuff. Yeah. So key myths and misconceptions that people have about bankruptcy. And there's lots of fear and uncertainty, like you said, around bankruptcy, just the word itself. It, it's mm-hmm. an old word, right? Yeah. It's been around for a very, very long time. And... Um, yeah, it's a tough one. So good. I'm glad we're doing this segment. Okay, so let's take away some of them. Uh, everybody's going to know. Everybody is going to know that I'm in 
personal bankruptcy or I've taken yeah. my company into bankruptcy. Yeah, you know, public admission of failure, public shaming, okay, when is the flogging scheduled, I'll show up, you know, all these things. Um, almost everyone that comes into my office, if they don't ask this in the first meeting, by the third meeting, they, they want to make sure, okay, so who's going to know about this? Yeah. And the answer is, for the vast majority of cases, 99% of the cases, there's no notice in the newspaper. Okay, so if you see a bankruptcy notice, that's less than 1% of cases. It very rarely happens. For the vast majority of cases where someone goes into bankruptcy, unless they've got huge assets that you know we have to sell, uh, there's no notice that goes in the newspaper. There's no public notification of anything. What happens when somebody files for bankruptcy is obviously the trustee is aware of it. I have to notify all of their creditors that they're no longer getting paid, and the person's aware, but that's about it. You know, It's even possible for a husband or a wife to go into bankruptcy and the other person not to be aware of it. Which is really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And are it's we not what we recommend, but it is no, possible. <laughs> that's right. It may not be the best foundation for a good marriage, but it is possible. Yeah, you know, people are always very concerned, you know, does my employer have to know, for right. example? Absolutely. That can create some perception in the employer's mind of whether you're responsible or not, even if the factors are completely outside of your control. Yeah. But the answer there is the only reason I would ever contact an employer is if you had already been sued and your wages were already being taken and I'm the person that can stop it. Got it. So in general, it's a positive thing when someone says, okay, and you're going to get me my wages back? Yeah, I have to tell your employer. I have to send some notification, but we get you your wages back. You know, your employer has already seen this lawsuit that's come through and says that you're a bad person for not paying your debt. So at least this is going to show, well, now you've legally taken some steps to deal with things. Excellent. So in general, the only people that have to know about a bankruptcy are the people that find out about it. There's no one superfluous. You need to know if you've got a debt. You need to know if you're the trustee. You need to know if you're the person. But otherwise, your friends, your neighbors, your family don't don't need to be informed. Excellent. And, th and there's nothing that's going to happen that's going to be screaming that out to them. Uh like your house being sold, you know, like yeah. all of those things, right? Yeah, these are very good questions because it's also, there's some cultural biases that, you know, we have a, a lot of folks who maybe have immigrated from China or from mm. Korea or different Asian countries. And I know from speaking with these clients that bankruptcy in those jurisdictions is completely different. It is very public. It is literally a red tag is placed on your front door. Wow. Someone enters your property, puts a red tag on your furniture. It's, it's literally the scarlet letter. Wow. Nothing like that exists in Canada, but someone from that environment, you know, automatically assumes, well, this must be a very publicly shaming type of thing. Absolutely. And it's really not. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll lose everything. Yeah. Everything will be gone. I won't have anything left. Yeah, and most people think that. You know, they even hesitate to come in to see a bankruptcy trustee because they think they're going to walk out, not even with the shoe, with the shirt on their back yeah. type of thing. Um, simplest way to say it is most people keep all of their assets through a bankruptcy. Okay, and the reason for that is theoretically when you apply for a bankruptcy or when you file for bankruptcy, you declare all the assets that you have and theoretically those assets have to go to pay your debts. But the provincial legislation or provincial government has stepped in and every province across Canada is similar and they've said there's certain exemptions. There are certain assets that just by virtue of us wanting to have a good dignified society that some people should never lose. They can never be taken from you and if you file for bankruptcy these exemptions kick in that usually protect just about everything that you've got. Okay. So let's talk about the categories of exemptions. Yeah. So first off, it's household goods and furniture. So I'm always asked, you know, are you going to show up at my door, inventory my furniture, cart out my TV, my computer, my bicycle? The answer is no. So government doesn't want that and nobody wants that. Really, I wouldn't be doing this job. That's what I had to do. Um, but what you have to do is just take an inventory of what you have at home and you do an inventory based on a garage sale value. So I'm not asking you replacement costs for your beautiful couch or computer or whatever. I'm saying if you put this out on your lawn for 
garage sale, or if you put an ad up on Craigslist, what's someone going to pay you for your furniture? The province says you're allowed up to $4,000 at garage sale value. I've been a practicing trustee for more than 10 years. I've never once had a client who has more than $4,000 if we're using a garage sale or a Craigslist value. Yeah, because we know you, uh, selling selling something in a garage sale, you get absolutely nothing for it compared oh, yeah. to its value. Well, people bargain for the entertainment. I've been there with my mom bargaining a coffee mug from a dollar down to 25 cents, and I'm like, oh my God, you can afford the 75 cents, Mom. Exactly. But it's the thrill of the chase, right? So, oh. But th that's the lens to use. It's right. nobody wants to take your furniture, and as a trustee, I'm going to trust what you tell me. You're going to swear an oath. This is what you have. This is what you think you could sell it for, and if it's less than $4,000, it's an exempt property. You keep it. Um, you know, another category here, and this is really common sense, but needs to go, needs to be said, is your clothing. Yeah. So your clothing, and this includes anything you need for medical purposes, if there's, you know, a CPAP machine or a wheelchair or things like that, obviously that would be completely wrong for you to have to lose medical aids and be completely strange that we got people walking around with no clothes because they're in debt. So the government says unlimited value of clothing and medical aids, nobody loses any of those things if you file for a bankruptcy. Okay, what if I have stocked my um, closet yeah. with expensive clothes. I've had that. I've yeah. had someone who literally had $10,000 of clothing. Sure. They were able to keep everything. Okay. Because yeah, because it's, it's not exemption. hard not hard to do today mm -hmm. if you <laughs> if you're that way inclined. Okay, good. Yep. So you don't lose it. Yeah. Um, your vehicle, which can be incredibly important yeah. uh, if you've got children in the home or you've got a job that you have to drive or you're self-employed. We know that mm -hmm. often self-employed people uh, get in pickles uh, quite easily or can depending on circumstances what about my vehicle yeah so your vehicle again almost everybody asks this question because they assume hey if i'm paying off my car and i go into bankruptcy you guys must take that car right the answer is no. no. So if you've got a loan against your car in just about every case, if you want to keep making those payments, you'll just keep making the payments and you'll keep the car. If you own the car outright, you're allowed in bankruptcy to have a vehicle worth up to $5,000. So if you've got a $40,000 car, but there's a $35,000 loan against it, your equity is $5,000 and you're okay. Now, if you've got a car that's worth more than $5,000 and there's no loan against it, that's when typically you'd make an arrangement with the trustee. We'd look at a black book value if it was sold at auction. If it's worth $6,000, you'd pay the extra $1,000 above the exempt value to keep the car during the bankruptcy. Okay. Um Fair enough. Uh, tools of trade, if I am self-employed and, and I need them, regardless of whether it's yeah. uh, sewing machines or or carpenter tools. Yeah, it could be a scalpel up to a bandsaw, it doesn't matter. Right. It's an exemption up to $10,000. Okay. So government wants you to be able to earn income, you get to keep your tools of the trade. And again, that $10,000 exemption, is that based on the same thing as my Garage furniture is based? Yep. Okay. Your Craigslist value, it's not replacement cost, it's what could you get if it was sold quickly. Wow. That's really important to remember. RRSPs, I think this is so important for people to know. I think we might have to cover RRSPs on our next topic. Okay, so don't get rid of them. Don't go cash see, them in and wait for our next segment. <laughs> go, go see Blair, Sands & Associates. Here's the number, 1-800-661-3030 for that free consultation. Check out their website, sands-trustee.com. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. 
In this segment, we're talking with Stuart Zuckerman, Zuckerman, uh, who went to UBC, got his law degree from UBC uh, some almost 29 years ago. Uh, that's what he studies is family law. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about in this in this segment, the collaborative divorce process as well, which I think is an important sort of piece to add into it. And uh, of course, there's so many, um, I mean, statistically, the number of people that uh, face divorce and all that kind of stuff, they're just crazy numbers these days. But I know that Blair's got a very specific question to start things off with. First of all, thanks so much for joining us, Stuart. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, and, and thanks, Stuart. Um, so, Stuart, you and I have, have spoken before because quite often, you know, there's an intersection between, you know, relationships break down and there's a lot of, you know, debt or hangovers that, that can really accrue to each of the, the parties there. So I see it from a bankruptcy or a proposal point of view. Um, but I know, Stuart, there's been a big change in the law. And this is going back to about 2013. So you might say, well, that's been a while ago. But I just know in my discussions with folks, people still don't seem to be aware of some of the really key differences that changed. So I wonder if we can start there. Can you take me through, um, you know, the new Family Law Act, new being in 2013, but what are some of the main changes there and what do people need to be aware of? Sure. So the main change to be aware of uh, is when that act came into force in 2013, replacing the Family Relations Act, new provisions uh, were applied to common law couples to deal with assets and debts and to treat common law couples the same way that married couples are treated. Um, And so uh, a common law spouse um, is defined in the act as, as two people of any sex being in a spousal-like relationship for a period of two years or more. So once you're living with somebody for two years or more, they can be called your common-law spouse. And as soon as that happens, they may have, uh, once they become a common-law spouse, they have a right to uh, 50% of the growth in equity of any assets that their partner owned from the date of cohabitation forward. Um, And their partner, of course, has the same right to an interest of 50% interest in the growth of that persons and the claiming persons uh, assets growth equity growth from the date of cohabitation forward and similarly debts from the date of cohabitation forward of either either party uh, can be uh, divided 50-50 between the two spouses when, when you're trying to figure out whether someone is a common law spouse or not you look at um, different factors the court has a discretion to determine that but things like whether they share their finances with a joint with joint bank accounts or not, whether they one party cooked or cleaned for the other, when, whether one party took care of the other, whether the couple presented themselves in social settings as being exclusive, that they weren't, neither of them were seeing other people, and if that was known publicly, all of those are indicators that the two people are common-law spouses or are acting in a spousal-like relationship. So it sounds like just pure living together isn't necessarily determinative. You could be common-law if you do all those other factors, but you still maintain separate residences. Would that be the, the, right? That's right. You know, if you're if it's a, if a boyfriend and girlfriend maintain their separate residences and one goes back and forth between the residences, he could argue or she could argue that they're not a common law spouse because they're not living together um, in the same uh, place. But there are cases where uh, where the you know a, a couple may have this type of relationship went on for ten years, um, and let's say the husband had a separate condo that he occasionally went to, but uh, nonetheless the parties were exclusive to each other. They the husband supported the the wife, the wife even even though they're not married. I'm calling them husband and wife, um, and the court found that they were in a common law relationship despite the two residences. So it really depends on the nature of the relationship and and the issue of exclusivity, whether the parties are seeing other people. Um, if they're if they if they've made a commitment to each other to to not see other people. 
um, then they may be in a common law relationship, even in some cases where there's no intercourse taking place, no sexual activity taking place, so that the couple um, are together, they're financially supporting each other, they're supporting each other through cooking and cleaning, but there's no sexual relationship, that could still lead to a common law relationship, because the couple is, has intertwined uh, other aspects of their lives and are living together. And how big of a change was that, Stuart? So b- before 2013, was common law even, you know, a thing, so to, so to speak? Were there any so, protections? So, yeah, before 2013, um, a common law spouse, someone who lived with someone for more than two years, only had their automatic presumpt- presumed right to claim spousal support under the Family Law Act. You could, under the Family Relations Act, you were able to claim spousal support. But in order to claim a property interest in the other party's property, that was much more complicated. You had to launch something called a, a, a constructive trust lawsuit or an unjust enrichment lawsuit, and you had to prove every contribution you made during the relationship that added value to the to the equity of the property that you were making a claim against, and then deduct from that any um, bon- any benefits that you received during the relationship. And what was left often was a very small claim, and it was very expensive to bring those claims. So common law spouses were often shut out of the courts. Once they made the new Family Law Act in 2013, it became an automatic presumption that regardless of any contribution. So, so let me give you an example. You know, a, 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 we'll call it John and Mary. John. Um, meets Mary, he moves, she moves into his home that he owned before he ever met her. And let's say the home had a million dollars equity before he ever met her. And this is 20 years ago, a nice home in Vancouver worth a million bucks or a million in equity. And they, they stay together for the next 10 years. And over those 10 years, you know, John earns over a hundred thousand a year. So he earns over a million dollars. Mary doesn't work at all. No children. Mary stays home for those 10 years. And, and at the end of 10 years, the house is now worth three million dollars. So the house has gone up by two million dollars from the date of cohabitation to the date that the parties separate. And Mary has not contributed a single penny to the equity in the house. John's paid all the bills for both parties. At the end of their relationship, Mary will have a claim to to $1 million, essentially half of the $2 million gain in equity. The home went up from $1 million to $3 million. It's gone up $2 million during the time they're together. She has an automatic presumed right to half of the gain, which is a $1 million. The only thing John can do under the Act is he can argue for something called a substantial unfairness. If he can establish to the court that it's substantially unfair for Mary to get half of the equity growth, then that can be overturned. But I must tell you that that... You know, under the old Act, under the Family Relations Act, there was a provision about unfairness, and it took a lot of evidence to establish unfairness to get something other than a 50-50 division under the old Act. But now it's much harder because they added the word substantial unfairness, and, and constitutional interpretation says you must give meaning to every word in a statute. So the fact that the word substantial has been added to the word unfairness means it has to be something much more than just unfair for the court to ignore the automatic presumption under the Act for a 50-50 division to be given to both parties. So it's going to be very hard for people to get away from the 50-50 provision on the basis of non-contribution or things of that nature. And I liked, or or not that I need to defend Mary in this situation, but if she looked after the house and cleaned it and cooked and and made sure there was groceries and all those kinds of things, those are the kinds of things that give Mary this... um, additional or not additional but kind of that that presence within that agreement or that uh the breaking up of the uh, relationship am i right about that or 
Well, well, the important thing to to realize here is that the that that this entitlement is actually regardless of any contribution by Mary. It used to be I that see. Mary, under the old Act, Mary would have to prove every contribution she made in order to earn an interest in the home. Now the court says even if she made no contribution whatsoever, the starting presumption when they show up on the first day of court, when they show up, the court is going to look at the owner, John, and say the law tells me, John, that Mary is automatically entitled to fifty percent of the increase in equity from the date you started living together to the date you separated, um, unless you can convince me that that would be substantially unfair. Um, and so even if Mary didn't lift a finger, if Mary was the laziest housewife in the world and just stayed home with her feet up eating bonbons, she would have an automatic entitlement to 50% of the growth in the equity. So it's not dependent on her having taken care of the home or cleaned or, or done any or raised children or anything else. Okay. Um, just a quick question again for me. I don't, I mean, does, does that sound right to you or fair to you? Or is that a good policy to have? Cause I don't know. I'm just that, wondering. And I like, it. and I like Mary. I like the life she's got going on, but I'm just not too sure if it's, if that's I, sort I can of tell good. You that it's been, I, you know, the, the law has been in place since 2013 and I have had many clients who've been shocked at the entitlement of their girlfriends. So I'm putting that word girlfriends in quotes. If their partner of more than two years has, has now become their common law spouse, they thought that because they didn't marry, they were protected that, yeah. that their, the equity in the home was theirs, and they were quite shocked to discover that their 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 girlfriend or former fiance, boyfriend, or common right? law spouse has yeah. this huge claim because in Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, property values have escalated tremendously over the last you know from 2013 till now, properties have gone up probably over 200 percent or something or 100. Oh yeah, and you don't have so, to be in a big house; you could be in a like a one bedroom right. condo in kits, and all of a sudden yeah. it's worth. Mm-hmm. Now, there, there have been some decisions that have come out from our from the Supreme Court that have given less than 50% in certain circumstances. So that when the court looks at a situation, if it's clear that, for example, let's say the parties maintain complete separate finances um, intentionally, the, the, you know, the, the, the John didn't trust Mary and didn't want her involved in any of his bank accounts, so he kept his account separate, Mary kept her account separate, um, and John kept track of the bills he paid, and let's say Mary paid for her own vacations. If the parties lived independent financial lives, that may be a factor that the court can look at on substantial unfairness to say this was not within the contemplation of the parties that it would be substantially unfair because the way they maintained their finances, um, it didn't work that way. Let's say, for example, at year five, uh, the roof collapsed, and even though Mary had a job, let's say, and she was working, um, and she kept her money in her own accounts, that she refused to help John pay for the roof repair, and John had to go out and get a loan to repair the roof and then pay the loan off. That would be a, that would be evidence to show that the parties never had the intention of sharing the equity. So there are always, you know, as a lawyer, and especially as a trial lawyer, I can tell you every trial I go to, it's a it's a storytelling exercise, It's and, and every trial turns on its own uh, facts. Even though the law may say one thing, you can, judges are always focused on fairness, and you can always present your your evidence and, and convince a judge one way or the other what is reasonable and what is fair. But the, the starting presumption of the law is now set to protect common law spouses so that they don't have to prove what contributions they made. There's just an automatic presumption that they're entitled without the necessity of proof. Yeah, and this is very interesting stuff, Stuart. We're just down to about our, our last minute or so. I wonder if you, if you can touch on the division of debts, because very often in here uh, on the show, I'm telling people you marry somebody, you don't marry their debts. Visa or MasterCard can't collect from you if your husband or wife incurs a debt. But how does that work when the relationship dissolves? So you're 
direct as between the as between the couple and their creditors. The creditors cannot sue Mary for John's debts or John for Mary's debts. That's that's true. But under the Family Law Act, John and Mary, just same as their assets, are equally liable to each other for 50% of the growth in either party's debts from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation. Now, the court will look at how the debts were incurred, and usually there's this qualifier that the debt, uh, presumed qualifier that the debt has to be incurred for a family purpose. So debts for clothing or eating out or groceries or gas or regular living expenses would all be considered debts for a family purpose. Whereas if John went on a bender to Las Vegas and lost, you know, 10000 on his credit card gambling, that's not a debt that the court would divide between the parties, even though it was incurred during the relationship. Mind you, if John and Mary together went to Las Vegas and lost 10000 on John's credit card gambling, and they were both participating in that loss uh, in that gambling event, then it would be, um, the, the liability would be shared between them, and it would come out of their uh, otherwise entitlement of the share of the assets, so the, the court would adjust the, the asset share that each party gets, the equity out of the home, for example, would be adjusted to ensure that the parties are paying that debt 50-50 between them. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We've, we've talked so much about the different ways people can get out of debt. Mm-hmm. Bankruptcy, consumer proposal, and all the ins and outs of that, which, which are great. But I think sometimes we, I always forget or tend to shy away from like the cost, because I'm never mm-hmm. quite sure what it's going to cost somebody, because it really is an individual thing, correct? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I have almost all clients will ask me that question. I never take it as an insult. You know, hey, how do you get paid? What's, yeah. in, it, what's in it for you? Because everybody you deal with, there's something in it for them. And as a trustee... Yeah, we don't work for free. You don't. And your office, it's filled with professionals, people mm-hmm. who are experts in their own fields, whether it be the counseling, whether it be the person like yourself, the licensed uh, trustee who's going to go through everything piece by piece and gather the information and figure it all out. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, good. I'm glad we're talking about this. How do you get paid? So what, let's talk about the cost. Let's talk about personal bankruptcy first. And what's the cost of filing uh, for personal bankruptcy? Yeah, so, so first off, before we even get there, you know, right off the top, if someone's struggling with debt, there's no charge to come and see us. So a trustee will spend time, we'll do at least two, if not three meetings, you know, to help you explore the whole situation. And very clearly, you don't pay a dime until you decide either you're going to do a bankruptcy or a proposal. And then the government kicks in and says what you have to pay. Everything is heavily regulated. I'll give you all the details on this segment. But just be aware, if you don't need the help of a trustee, a trustee still is going to spend a lot of time with you for no charge, give you a whole bunch of advice, help you figure out, navigate the waters a little bit and be a resource for you, uh, but all that's at no charge for a consultation. Nice. Very good. Now, if it makes sense for you to file a personal bankruptcy, so I often get asked, you know, well, is bankruptcy subsidized by the government? The government kicks in some money or different things like that? And the answer is no. It's actually when I file a bankruptcy as a trustee, I need to pay the government money to actually file that bankruptcy. Um, So there's out-of-pocket costs, you know, right 
off the top, a trustee has to pay a filing fee. What it means for the individual is the cost of filing bankruptcy, it really comes into two categories of people and it's all based on your income. So if you're considered low income and low income in BC and across the country, it's a very low cutoff. It basically says if you're earning less than roughly $2,150 per month, after tax take home pay as a single person, you're considered low income. If you go into bankruptcy as a low income individual, you're just asked to pay the cost of the bankruptcy, which works out to $1,800 payable over a term of nine months. And that's a flat fee, that $1,800? Okay. That includes everything. So it includes the filing fee to register the bankruptcy in Canada, as I mentioned. Uh, It includes two financial counseling sessions, which are some of the most beneficial time you'll ever spend. You sit down one-on-one with our counselors, not a group session. We talk to you about budgeting, about rebuilding your credit after the bankruptcy, trying to make sure it's a one-time thing in your life. You come through the doors. So you get that included as well. Um, And then we also have to prepare and file your tax returns. So you'd normally be paying an accountant or maybe doing it yourself. But if you're in bankruptcy, the trustee is mandated by government to get you caught up on your taxes and file your tax returns for the year of the bankruptcy. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. That's correct, yeah. And the whole idea of that is there's a thing called the fresh start principle. And what it means is that when you finish a bankruptcy, it should be a fresh start. You shouldn't owe anybody any money. And the government, you know, you could owe the government money. Um, So making sure that if you got doing your taxes in bankruptcy, all that debt gets included in a bankruptcy as well. Okay. Now, the other scenario for a bankruptcy, so as I mentioned, there's a scenario if you're low income, and that's a nine months, $1,800 arrangement. And normally the $200 a month is a lot less than the person is actually paying on interest or minimum payments each month. Um, but still, it can be a bit tough to afford. And, you know, we'll work with folks. We'll try to do a longer term payment plan if we have to. Now, if somebody is not low income, so the thing to keep in mind here is the cost and the duration of a bankruptcy. It doesn't matter at all based on the debt. So you're not held in bankruptcy longer because you ran up a million dollars in debt and you don't get out of bankruptcy sooner because you only owed $5,000. It's not related at all to the amount of your debt. It's only related to your monthly income. So if you're not low income in Canada, meaning that you're earning more than roughly the $21.50 per month as a single person, bankruptcy runs for a year longer than the original nine months. So it runs for 21 months in total. Okay. So, but now, I'm sorry, I just got confused because you talked about the amount of debt. It's not, the time isn't determined by the amount of the debt. It's what your income is. That's right. And that's so key. And I know this is a confusing thing, so slow me down if I I go too far. Well, it is. So let's say I owe, I don't know, pick a number, huge number, a big number. 120,000. Okay. Which is a pretty big number. And my income is... $1,000 $1,000 or let's say, no, no it's got to be over, it's got to be over, let's say it's twenty five, three thousand dollars $3,000 a month. $3,000 a month, okay. Okay. Yep. Um, and I'm going to file for personal bankruptcy. That's mm-hmm. my income is 3000 and that's what my take home is, right. right? After tax, yep. After tax. So... And I owe 125000 is that what we said? How does that work? That seems like a, a short amount of time to pay off a huge amount of money, but I know I'm not yep. paying it all off that's, either, right? That's the whole point. That's so the key. It, in bankruptcy, it's different than a proposal. In a proposal, you're paying a percentage of the debt back. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's 40%, something like Fair that. Fair enough, sure. In a bankruptcy, zero relation to the debt. Got it, so okay. So when, when the debts are just so high, again, I've had some people, you know, $500,000 assessments from CRA, they can't afford to pay off a third or a quarter of that. If they they go into bankruptcy, it's the same bankruptcy as if they had owed $50,000 and it. not five hundred. Of course, 000. that makes complete sense to me now. Okay, I, I'm not so, yeah, I, I, I'm less confused than I was. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. That's the point <laughs> of the show. Yay! Yeah. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> but now, the, the whole 
the whole dichotomy here too is you've got the low income person who's finished bankruptcy in nine months yes. and then you've got somebody who's not low income that's essentially they're accrued a penalty so it's an extra year in bankruptcy they've got to spend a year longer being bankrupt and what that means is every month they've got to give the trustee a report on their earnings and verify their income um, you know there's not too many limitations in the jobs that they can take on but you know they couldn't be a lawyer administering trust funds or things like that so sure. there's a few limitations so you do want to get out of bankruptcy um, but the issue is that you're also requested or required to make payments based on your income so if you're low income you pay the $200 a month for nine months if you're not low income the government says okay low income guideline is $2,150 that's what we think you need to make ends meet and it doesn't matter if your rent is $1,800 the government just says here's the low income guideline as soon as you exceed $2,150 you get to keep half of the extra and you have to pay half to the trustee okay so coming to your example I'm going to use a little bit rounder numbers just to makes it easy for me yes uh, if you were earning 3150 you're above 2150 by a thousand dollars if you were in bankruptcy each month you would pay half of that difference or five hundred dollars okay so for your $120,000 of tax debt, if you were in bankruptcy earning $3,150 per month, you'd pay back about $10,000 of that debt, you'd be discharged on the rest, and you'd move on with your life in 21 months. Okay. All right. I think, I think that's, it's certainly more clear to me than it was before. I get it now. Mm-hmm. So what about how does that differ then, or should we just talk about a consumer proposal in and of itself, yeah. um, the differences? Yeah. So where a bankruptcy has no relation to the amount of your debt, it's only based on your income. Yeah. Consumer proposal is completely related to the amount of your debt because the way a proposal works is we put together a scenario, an analysis, and we say if you were to file for bankruptcy based on that $120,000 of debt, you'd pay back about $10,000. That's about an 8% recovery. That's not good for your creditors, and nobody can reject a bankruptcy in Canada. Your creditors can't say, hey, we don't want to accept this. You keep paying us. It's your right, and they've got to accept that lower repayment. Right. If you do a consumer proposal, we offer them a greater recovery. So maybe instead of $10,000 payable, you offer them $20,000 thousand dollars over a period of a longer time right so at some percentage of the debt you know in this case maybe it's 15 or 20 percent of the debt usually it's in the range of 20 to 40 percent as a ballpark but you pay off that reduced percentage and you pay zero fees on top of that exactly zero fees zero interest what what you can afford to repay on the debt is enough everybody else gets paid out of that the trustee gets paid the government filing fees the counseling fees get paid so for an example I was helping a client a couple weeks ago um, he had fifty five thousand dollars of total debt we did a consumer proposal to reduce it to twenty three thousand four hundred dollars in total so he made monthly payments of about six hundred and fifty dollars over 36 months the only thing he paid was when he signed the proposal he made the first month's payment and then he just kept paying after that per month and you worked that out with them with exactly. that person like and their creditors right oh, you yeah. you propose this is what we're going to pay you yeah. I'm representing Joe or Mary uh, this is what we're going to pay and then they agree well it's even better than that Elaine if I was representing Joe or Mary then the creditors might think I'm trying to pull a fast one I'm an independent officer of the court I'm in the middle I'm saying here's a fair settlement for everybody involved yes and 95 to 99 percent of the time people accept those yeah those absolutely proposals. and that's what I meant yeah, yeah yeah no it's important though I know that you that it needs to be absolutely clear clear. Absolutely. So Joe or Mary gets to pay back the debt, which is awesome. Mm -hmm. They feel better about themselves. Their creditors get 
an amount of money that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Exactly. I'll give you their phone number again. It's 1-800-661-3030. And their, and their line, their byline is helping you get out of debt. And they'll help you figure out how to, the, the very best way to do that. If you'd like more information, you just want to read about things, sands-trustee.com is the website. It's got a ton of good information. You can also set up a free consultation and uh, get an appointment for that free consultation and uh, get a hold of an office near you. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.